Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Many of you know I've been preaching through the book of Luke. Uh, we're getting there towards the end. A uh, few chapters left. Uh, been a great ride through this book that tells us, uh, gives us historical facts about the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're now in Luke chapter 19. We'll be reading verses 41 through 48. Luke 19, 41 through 48. Let's pray before we read. Father, we thank you for every opportunity to open your word. Lord, we believe there is absolute truth in this universe. You are absolute truth, and we believe you have breathed out absolute truth for us here in the Word of God, a a truth that we can rest upon and lean upon and trust and bank our lives upon. And uh, Father, we just look to you now, the one who breathed this Word out for us. We ask, Father, will you send your Spirit now and enlighten our hearts so that we might uh, comprehend great things from your Word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Amen. Back in Luke 9.51, some ten chapters ago now here in the book of Luke, Luke said that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus then started out on this long, slow, almost one-year journey to Jerusalem where he would ultimately be crucified. And Jesus is now finally entering Jerusalem here. This passage marks, what, uh, marks the start of what many Christians call Passion Week. Passio in Latin means suffering. So Passion Week refers to the week of Christ's suffering. He's entering Jerusalem here on a Sunday, and just five days from now, on the following Friday, Jesus will be crucified. And seven days from now, Jesus will be resurrected from the dead. And now it will actually take another five chapters here in the book of Luke for all that to be finished. But Jesus is now entering Passion Week. But you know, this is not just Passion Week in the sense that this is the week of Christ's suffering. No, this is also Passion Week in the sense that this is the week where Christ shows some serious emotion. You know, the word passion can refer to suffering, but passion can also refer to powerful emotions or feelings, passions. 
And this is Passion Week in that sense as well. We, we won't just see in the next five chapters here the sufferings of Christ. We will also see here in these chapters some serious emotions from Christ. Jesus is fully God, but Jesus is also fully human. He's just like us in every way except for sin. And as a human being on this earth, Jesus experienced some very strong passions or emotions. And here in this passage, we see two very intense passions or emotions from Jesus. And the first thing we see here is sorrow, a very intense sorrow for the city of God, Jerusalem. Luke says in verse 41 that when Jesus drew near and finally saw the city of Jerusalem here, he wept. And that right there is is a very sharp contrast to what we saw in the passage right before this. In the previous passage, Jesus, riding on a donkey, was nearing Jerusalem along with a a load of his disciples. And as they reached the crest of the Mount of Olives and descended down the other side and caught their first sight of Jerusalem, Luke said that the disciples erupted in this joyful praise for Jesus, this Messiah King. But Jesus sees the city here, and he weeps. And the Greek word there can indicate a full sobbing, or even a wailing. This this right here was, was was a passionate, very audible, very visible weeping from Jesus. The the crowd here was probably stunned. I imagine that this crowd of disciples went from from praise to absolute silence in seconds. Have you ever been to a party or or something where, where everybody's laughing, everybody's talking, having a good time, and all of a sudden, for some reason, somebody starts crying, and the mood in the room changes instantly. And I think that's probably what happened right here. The disciples probably go from praise to silence in seconds as Jesus, this this great Messiah King, looks out at Jerusalem, stretched out before him, and begins to weep over the city. And many people call this the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And in many ways, this is a triumphal entry. The Messiah is now entering Jerusalem, surrounded by the praises of his people. But you know, for for Jesus himself, this was not necessarily a triumphal entry. This was a very tearful entry, a heartbreaking entry for the Son of God. And We learn in the next verse why Jesus was weeping. If you look at verse 42 again, Jesus says, Would that you, Jerusalem, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. If If only you knew today, Jerusalem, If only you understood today that the things that make for peace or the things that would lead you to peace. And and Jesus was really talking there to to all of Israel, talking to all of the Jewish 
people as, as a whole. Jerusalem was the, the holy city in Israel. Jerusalem stood for all of Israel. So Jesus was really saying there, if you only knew today Israel, if you only knew today Jewish people, the things that would lead to your peace, and what were the things that would have led the Jewish people to peace back then? Well, Jesus has been talking about those things all the way through the book of Luke. And very simply, they are repentance and faith. The, the things that would have led the Jewish people to peace, the, the things that will lead anyone to an ultimate, eternal peace with God are repentance and faith. Repentance, you turn away from your sin. And in faith, you, you trust in Jesus as the Messiah King. You, you trust in Him as your Savior and as your Master. And those things, repentance and faith, they lead you to an ultimate, eternal peace with God. And man, listen, you, you and I, we, we desperately need to be led to a peace with God because the Bible says that when we are born, we are not at peace with God. In your natural born state, you are a sinner. And, and as a sinner, because of your sin, there, there's this hostility or this enmity that exists between you and God. Romans 8, 7, the Bible says your mind in that state is hostile toward God. Colossians 1, 21, you are alienated from God. Romans 5, 10, you are an enemy of God. In your natural born state, there, there, there is no peace between you and God. But man, the, the good news is that Jesus Christ came to this earth to take the punishment for our sin in order that we might have peace with God. Jesus, on the cross, he purchased peace for us. And the way you now receive and enter that peace is through repentance and faith, you turn away from your sin and repentance, trust in Christ, in faith, and the hostility between you and God is gone. <laughs> and you now have peace. You now have an ultimate, eternal peace with God. But man, in this passage here, Jesus is weeping over this city because Israel, in his day, by and large, had rejected those things. The, the, the Jewish religious leaders, and, and also many of the Jewish people, they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Refused to turn to him in repentance. Refused to come to him in faith. And because they had rejected Jesus, they had rejected the peace that Jesus came to bring. And man, when you step back and look at this passage, it's really, really ironic what is going on right here. The name Jerusalem means peace. Jerusalem, the abode of peace, the city of peace, the prince of peace is now riding into the city of peace. But the city of peace has already rejected 
the Prince of Peace. And because of that, this city of peace is actually a city of no peace whatsoever. It's incredibly ironic. And Jesus is weeping here, man, because he knows that Jerusalem, instead of the peace she could have had, is now going to receive judgment. And Jesus says here that the things that could have led Jerusalem to peace are now hidden from her eyes. Because of Jerusalem's rejection of Jesus, God, at this point in time, has already hidden from her the way to peace. Jerusalem now, man, she sits here as Jesus approaches, she sits here in a spiritual darkness, a a spiritual blindness. Jesus, the light of the world, is approaching And she cannot see the light. Man, she can't see Jesus to be the great Messiah he is. She can't see that the way to peace is through repentance and faith in Jesus. Those things have now been hidden from her by God as a punishment for rejecting the Messiah. Luke, Jesus talked about it in Luke 13, 3. He said, Oh, Jerusalem, how, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And Jerusalem, at this point in time, she has missed her window of opportunity. She has missed her moment of truth. And Jesus knows, as he's approaching, he knows that because of a rejection of him, this beautiful city will soon be decimated. You look at verse 43 again. Jesus says, For the days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you you had a visitation from God himself. Me, Jesus, God in human flesh, God has visited you, and because you rejected me, you will not see peace, but only destruction. And man, Jesus was dead on right when he said those words there. Everything Jesus predicted in those verses about Jerusalem, it all happened just as Jesus predicted. And just a few years after Jesus predicted it, in A.D. 70, when the Romans finally came in and absolutely obliterated Jerusalem. Titus, the Roman emperor in charge at the time, built giant siege works around the city of Jerusalem. He also built a wall, a massive wall around the city to hem it in so nobody could escape. He then starved the city and slaughtered men, women, and children. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, said 
that as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, Titus then gave orders to demolish the city and the temple because he wanted to make it impossible for anyone to believe that Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. And man, the final devastation of Jerusalem was so great that according to Josephus, a Roman general later came and saw the devastation and he, quote, threw his arms heavenward, uttered a groan, and called God to witness that this was not his doing. Man, Jesus is weeping here because he knows that this devastation is coming to Jerusalem. This is a broken-hearted Savior here weeping because he knows what Jerusalem will suffer for rejecting him. And, and you know what? Jesus still weeps for those who reject him today. Still weeps for those who reject him today because he knows how much they will suffer Man, the suffering that the the Jews experienced in in A.D. 70, that that was just a tiny foretaste of the suffering that everyone who who rejects Christ will ultimately experience if they continue to reject Christ. Everyone who rejects Jesus and refuses to turn to him in repentance and faith will ultimately be judged by Jesus when he returns to this earth and they will then enter an eternal suffering, the Bible says. And man, Jesus, Jesus weeps. Jesus weeps today for those who are now rejecting him, a broken-hearted Savior, weeping because he knows how much they will suffer. Man, the the weeping that we see here in this passage, that is the heart of God for lost unbelievers. Man, don't ever think that God is callous toward the lost. Don't ever think that that God is is hard-hearted and doesn't care about their eternal suffering if they continue to reject Jesus. Man, if you are are still lost in your sins here today, there's not a genuine faith in Christ. You are now moving toward an, an eternal suffering, but God is not calloused towards you. No, God grieves for you. Jesus now weeps for you. Amen. If you will turn to Jesus in repentance and faith today, Jesus will rejoice over you, and he will gladly give to you this eternal peace that he purchased on the cross. And, and, and listen, if you are here today and, and, and you are no longer lost, you, you, you have turned to Christ in repentance and faith, you, you have received this eternal peace that he purchased for you, praise God. But listen, if that's you, then the heart of Jesus Christ for lost sinners should be reflected in you. It should be reflected in you. Jesus weeps for the lost. He wept for you when you were lost. 
Man, the tears here in this passage are tears that he cried for you when you were lost. An old 18th century hymn by Benjamin Badome says about this passage here, it says, The Son of God in tears, the, the wondering angels see. Be thou astonished, O my soul, for he shed those tears for thee. Jesus wept for you when you were lost. And man, when the Spirit of Jesus lives in your heart by faith, you should weep for the lost too. And if you don't truly grieve for the lost as a Christian, you may not know Jesus all that well yet. I'm not saying you don't know him. You probably do. But you probably don't know him all that well yet. J.C. Ryle says, quote, If we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people, then we know little of true Christianity. If Christ felt tenderly about wicked people, then the disciples of Christ ought to feel likewise. End quote. So that's the, the first passion or emotion we see in Jesus here, this intense sorrow for the city of God, Jerusalem. And the second thing we see here is an intense zeal for the house of God, the temple. After weeping on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus now enters Jerusalem through the east gate of the city, directly into the temple courts, the, the areas surrounding the temple building itself. And the temple complex in Jesus' day was an amazing structure. One of the most beautiful structures in the world at the time. The entire temple complex took up almost a, a quarter of a square mile, and King Herod had recently spent immense amounts of money to beautify it with, with these massive white marble stones, much of its exterior plated with gold and silver. Many people said that the temple and the temple complex, it looked from a distance like the shining snow-capped peak of a mountain. And, and, and the temple, it, it had some, some serious spiritual history in Israel. For, for hundreds of years up to this point in time here, the temple had been the very heart of the Jewish religion. The, the temple was the place where the Jewish people would go to meet with God. The temple was the place where they would go to, to offer sacrifices. That was the place they would go of, to have the priests pray for them. The temple in Jerusalem for years had actually been the very dwelling place of God on this earth. When Solomon originally finished the temple back in 1 Kings 8, the Bible says that the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God's, God's dwelling place on earth, the, the very house of God on this earth. But man, by, by the time Jesus was born, the temple had become a place of religious corruption. The Jewish people, they, they still looked on the surface 
like, like they were following God, still, still honored God with their lips, and yet their hearts were far from God. As Jesus says in Mark 7, it was a very hypocritical religion. And the temple was a place of some massive religious corruption. When Jesus enters the temple grounds here, he is angry by what he finds here. And and what does he find here? Well, Luke simply says in verse 45 that Jesus found people selling things there in the temple grounds. But Matthew 21 fleshes it out a little bit more and says that Jesus found money changers there and people buying and selling animals. Here's what's going on there. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem here right before Passover. The largest festival of the year when people would travel from all over Israel to Jerusalem. And when these travelers arrived in Jerusalem for Passover, they had to buy animals for their sacrifices. They couldn't bring the animals with them. They had to buy them there in Jerusalem. They had to buy Passover lambs for their meals. And the travelers who came in for Passover, they were also required to pay a temple tax at Passover, and the only coins accepted for that temple tax were these special silver Tyrian coins. So the travelers had to exchange money there in Jerusalem to get those coins for the tax. All of that stuff going on in Jerusalem at Passover, and at some time in the past, before Jesus showed up, at some time, some time ago, the Jewish religious leaders decided that it would be more convenient for all of the people to do all of that stuff right there on temple grounds. And the religious leaders then used that as an opportunity to absolutely fleece the people of Israel, swindling them in every type of way, charging exorbitant prices for the animals, a sky-high exchange rate for the coins and, and so on. And, and all of this thing, when it came into the temple, all of it was now under the control of the high priest, whom Josephus described as, quote, the great procurer of money, end quote. Man, this, this thing here around the temple at Passover, this was big, big, big business for the Jewish religious leaders. It was commercialized religion at its best. And, and, and what made things worse here was that the religious leaders had chosen to run this big business in a very specific place on the temple grounds. They had chosen to do it in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles, which was outside the temple building itself, and the court of the Gentiles, which was also outside of the other courts that were surrounding the temple building, was really kind of the the last court in the temple complex. The, The court of the Gentiles was the only place in the entire temple complex 
where non-Jews could go to pray and worship God. The only place where Gentiles could get close to God. And the Jewish leaders had chosen to set up shop right there. Absolutely packing the court of Gentiles with caged animals, money changers at their tables, drawing thousands of Jews into that court every day, this flurry of activity and noise in there, and very, very subtly crowding out the Gentiles and pushing them away from the things of God. A tiny picture of what Israel was doing as a nation at the time. You know, God had originally called Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. To, to, to be a light that would point Gentiles to God. But, but Israel had kept the light of God to themselves and pushed the Gentiles away. And now Jesus, God in human flesh, has just entered the temple grounds around all this activity and noise. And Jesus is hot. A sinless anger. Not sinful. A very intense righteous anger, zealous for the house of God. And Luke says there in verse 45 that Jesus began to drive out those who sold. Jesus driving out those who sold. It's the same Greek word as when Jesus cast out demons. Driving them out of the temple. Matthew 21 says that he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those who sold pigeons. Mark 11 says that he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Man, that right there, that was an act of sinless violence. Have you ever seen anybody... Turn over a table in anger. I have seen it. Mr. Miller, my fifth grade teacher, believe it or not. (laughs) Just a tiny bit of an anger problem with that man. Oh my word. Got mad at a student. Grabbed the kid's desk. The type of desk that has the top that opens, you know, that can hold all the stuff inside. Books, papers, pencils, pennies, you know, all the gum grabbed the desk and flipped it across the room. Bang! And the kid's stuff went everywhere in my little fifth grade classroom. And nobody disobeyed Mr. Miller for the rest of the year, I can promise you that. Man, a sinful anger from Mr. Miller. This right here was not sinful. But it was violent. A sin, sinless violence. An angry, righteous zeal here for the house of God. Huh. 
gentle Jesus, meek and mild, flexes his muscle and basically cleans house right here. And the Old Testament prophets said that the Messiah would come to the temple like that. Malachi 3.1, a prophecy written some 400 years before Jesus was ever born. It said this, the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming? For he is like a refiner's fire. He will purify the sons of Levi, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And there he is, the Messiah, coming to the temple like a refiner's fire to purify. Amen. You know what? This may shock some of you, but Jesus still has a righteous anger today. He still, still does. He can still be provoked to anger. And, and you know, out of, out of all the things in the world, do, do you know what probably provokes Jesus to anger more than anything else? Do you know what provokes God to anger more than anything else in the Bible? You know what it is? You would think it's out there somewhere. What, what lost unbelievers are doing all over the world. And yes, that does provoke Jesus to anger. But do you know the thing that provokes him probably to more anger than anything else? You know what it is? Hypocritical religion. Hypocritical religion. When it comes to our religion, when, when it comes to our Christianity, Jesus would prefer that we would either be hot or cold, Revelation 3.15, but a lukewarm hypocrisy where we praise him with our lips and our hearts are far from him, Jesus does not like it. So man, Jesus ransacks the place here, and while he's doing it, absolutely blasts the religious leaders. You look at verse 46 again. Jesus, probably shouting here, <laughs> says, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And, and, and Jesus was, was quoting there from two ancient Old Testament prophecies. The, the first part of that statement there is from Isaiah 56, where God says, My house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples or for all nations. You could take it down for one second. And that phrase, all peoples, is important in that Isaiah prophecy. That was really the main point of Isaiah's prophecy. The, the house of God, the, the temple, would be for all people and not just for Israel. And here it is, the fuller prophecy. This is Isaiah 56. Isaiah said, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, these foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah's main point was that the house of God, the, the temple, 
would be for all peoples or all nations. So Jesus, by, by quoting that verse right there in the temple, Jesus is blasting the religious leaders for the way they had excluded non-Jews from the temple. Angry with the way they had kept the light of God to themselves and pushed the Gentiles away. And the second Old Testament passage that Jesus quotes right there in the temple is from Jeremiah 7, which was originally a searing indictment from God against the hypocritical worship in Israel back in Jeremiah's day. Here it is. This is Jeremiah 7, 8. Behold Israel, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has the house of has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? So, by quoting from that passage there in the temple, Jesus was blasting the religious leaders for their hypocritical worship. The, the way they seemed to be worshiping God around the temple with this flurry of activity, and yet their hearts far from him. So with those two Old Testament passages that Jesus quoted very quickly right there, Jesus has now condemned the religious leaders for their exclusion of Jews from the temple and also condemned them for their hypocritical worship at the temple. And because of this scene that Jesus has now caused here in the temple... Because he has absolutely ridiculed and shamed the religious leaders here in the house of God. The religious leaders now want to kill him. They've grumbled at him all through the book of Luke. But now they want to kill him. That was the proverbial last straw. If you look at verse 47 again. Luke says that Jesus then taught daily in the temple during Passion Week here, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And that right there is the first time now here in the book of Luke that we have heard an explicit mention of a plot to kill Jesus. The crowds in Israel for the time being are still hanging on his words, but the religious leaders now want to kill him. So there it is. Start of Passion Week. Two very intense passions or emotions from Jesus. A a sorrow for the city of God and a zeal for the house of God. And, you know, that, that passage right there, with, with everything that Jesus does there in that passage, I think God is probably trying to tell us something there. You, you think about it for a second. We find here in this passage two really big entities, <laughs> Jerusalem and 
the temple, the, the city of God and the house of God. Two very important things in the Bible. And man, you look at those two very important things here in this passage, and they are both an absolute mess. Jerusalem, the the city of God, is filled with people who have rejected the Son of God. And the temple, the house of God, is polluted with this hypocritical, greedy, Gentile-excluding, false religion. Both of the things are a mess, an absolute and total mess. And with that passage there, with everything Jesus does there, I think God is probably trying to tell us something. I, I think... God is probably trying to tell us there that there's something better. There's something much, much better. And there is something better. You know what it is? Well, for starters, there's a better Jerusalem. A much, much better Jerusalem. Right now, there's a better Jerusalem. Not a better physical Jerusalem uh, on this earth right now, but a better spiritual Jerusalem in heaven right now. And, and listen, the Bible says that the second you genuinely turn from your sins and trust in Christ by faith, guess what? You actually enter the better spiritual heavenly Jerusalem. You, you become a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. Galatians 4.26, Paul says that the Jerusalem above is free, and she is the mother of all believers. (laughs) Hebrews 12.22 says that believers on this earth, they have now come to the heavenly Jerusalem. (laughs) Through repentance and faith in Christ, believers have somehow entered this spiritual Jerusalem, citizens of a heavenly Jerusalem. And man, Revelation 21, it says that this heavenly Jerusalem will one day actually descend out of heaven. The new Jerusalem, the Bible calls it. And every believer who's ever walked the face of this planet will then actually live in that new Jerusalem. Somehow be a part of that new Jerusalem with Jesus forever. The true city of God. A city filled not with people who have rejected Jesus the Messiah like this city here, but a city of people filled with people who love and worship Jesus the Messiah forever. A better Jerusalem. But you know what? There's also a better temple. There's a better temple, a a, a much better temple, a perfect temple. And that better, perfect temple is Christ. Man, you know, when Solomon originally built this temple right here in Israel, in Jerusalem, when he built this temple, the glory of God entered that temple. God himself, in some ways, was dwelling in that temple. But man, that temple was not a perfect temple. And, and that temple was simply meant to point people forward to a much better temple that was to come in the future. A perfect temple. And the perfect temple is Christ. 
<laughs> you think about it. When, when Jesus, God the Son, when he came to earth and he wrapped himself in human flesh, the new and better temple was here. In Jesus, God was, was now dwelling on earth perfectly. In Jesus, the glory of God can now be seen on earth perfectly. The new and better temple was here. The perfect temple the house of God on earth. And man, Jesus, Jesus is a temple for all peoples. Not just a temple for Jews, but a temple for Jews and non-Jews. Man, anyone who desires to go to this temple named Jesus, anyone who desires to go there can and can meet with God there at that temple can see God there in Jesus, can worship God there in Jesus, enjoy God there in Jesus. Man, the crazy thing is that when you do go to this new and better perfect temple named Jesus, you know what happens? You actually become part of the temple. You become part of that temple. The Bible says that Christians are one with Christ. The Bible says we are united to Christ, we are the body of Christ, and God now dwells in us. The Holy Spirit living in us. And man, people can now dimly see the glory of God in Christians. You're a part of the new and better temple. When you come to Christ, you become a living stone in that temple, according to 1 Peter 2, being built up right now, being perfected right now. And when Jesus returns to earth and everything's finally said and done here on this earth, this temple of Jesus and his people will be perfect. Will be perfect. The true and perfect eternal house of God. Man, things are a mess here in this passage, but I think God probably wants to point us forward to better things better things that are coming, a new Jerusalem, a better Jerusalem, a better temple. If you'll simply turn to Christ in genuine repentance and faith, you will right now enter the gates of the better Jerusalem. And you will right now become a stone, a living stone in the better temple. And you will receive this peace that never ends, the peace that Jesus came to purchase. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Pray, Father, you give us faith to believe. Give us faith to believe that the things in your word are true. That we have a Savior, Jesus, who has come to this earth to create for us new and better things. Things that are defunct, things that are corrupt, things that are polluted, that Jesus has come to, to renew them and, and recreate them and make them better and make them the way they were originally designed to be. Lord, give us faith to believe that in Christ we can actually enter a new and better Jerusalem. We can, we can enter a, a new and better temple, be part of that temple. Lord, give us faith to believe these things. And help us to run, following Jesus, our Messiah, forever. In Jesus' name, amen.